0: And here's what the Christian life is. It's resting because of Jesus' work for you, and it's fighting because of the Spirit's work in you. It's resting. It's a life of resting because of Jesus' work for you, and it's a life of fighting because of his Spirit's work in you. All right? So here we go. Romans 8. This is the Apostle Paul writing to folks like us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, for a sin offering. He condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, they set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and it's peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to his law. Indeed, it can't submit to his law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however... So then, brothers and sisters, we are not debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. Uh, Let's pray before we take a seat. Uh, Our God, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit. He is the one that makes us alive. He is the one who gives our blind eyes sight. He's the one who opens our deaf ears. And softens our cold hearts. So we need you, uh, not in a uh, not in a we're supposed to say this before we talk about your word, but we really need you tonight, all of us. But you love to come. You love to open eyes. You love to soften hearts. You love to make people alive. And so we pray with hope that you will do that very thing tonight, Lord Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right. You hey, thanks. You can take a seat. So you can tell a little scared kid that there is not a monster under your bed or in your closet, and he will not believe you. And the reason he won't believe you is because his imagination is kind of racing. his, His thoughts, his mind is playing tricks on him. His ears tell him that there's something in the closet. And the same thing is true. If you tell a Christian there is no condemnation for you under the bed, in the closet, anywhere... The Christian likely will struggle, just like the scared kid in bed, to believe that, no, there's actually not any condemnation. For the same reason the kid doesn't really believe you when you say there's not a monster under your bed. Our minds, our imaginations are active. Our senses play tricks on us. Uh, And so however many times you hear preachers or books or other people tell you uh, that if you're in Jesus, you are free, you are not condemned, there is no shame, you still feel shame, right? Right? You still sometimes feel at odds with God or scared of him, like, I don't feel safe being around him, right? Um, Now, here's the thing. It's kind of funny when we're talking about kids scared in their bed, about monsters being under the bed or uh, in the closet. It's not so funny when we're talking about 20-year-olds, 22-year-olds, who from time to time question whether their salvation really is that secure, Whether Jesus has done something lasting or something fragile that's breakable, that the next binge on sin or the next season or month of not reading your Bible or not praying or whatever is going to kind of knock you out and put you back under this cloud of judgment or cloud of God kind of wiping his hands clean of you. Be gone. Screwball. Just, I'm done with you. We've been through this enough times. We live in that fear a lot of times. And that's not funny, while the kids might be. Paul knows he's writing to people like you and me. People who, he says, there's not a monster under the bed, and we like, we prove it. He says there's no condemnation. Now, the way we know that Paul is kind of bending over backwards to persuade you that you really are safe in Jesus uh, is uh, a few things we'll talk about in just a second. He kind of, time and time again, he says a lot of stuff. Uh, He kind of looks under every nook and cranny, every rock, and says, see, none here. Now let's go back to the kid in bed. Um, you tell that little kid, maybe you were this kid, hey, there's, they call you in their mom, dad, there's something under my bed. And you say, there's not a monster in your bed, and you shut the light off and you go back to your room. That ain't going to work, right? The reason it's not going to work, what are they going to want you to do before they're able to go back to sleep? Show me. They're going to want you in their closet with a flashlight or the lights on, inspecting every corner. They're going to want you on all fours underneath their bed, certifying that it's 100% monster free, right? Uh, they're going to want to know, they're going to want to hear you say, honey, I'm 10 feet away. If you cry again, if you need me, I'm here. But they still won't be able to go to sleep, I don't think. And the reason why is because what if a monster gets back in the room after mom or dad goes back to their bedroom, right? <laughs> Yeah, they checked the room now, it's clear now, but what if one gets through the window and I wake up again and they can't hear me crying? Um, I apologize if this is going to send any of you into serious nightmares tonight. (laughs) But they're going to want you to exhaustively search the room. And can I convince you that Paul is going to, before your very eyes in this passage, exhaustively search your closet under your bed, your past, your present, your future. And he's going to say There is no condemnation. I've searched everywhere. There's none. Um, But then you sit on the end of the bed kind of wide-eyed looking at Pastor Paul telling you this. And you're like, yeah, but Paul, how can I be sure? Do you know who I am? Do you know what Christmas break was like for me? You know how many times I said I wasn't going to go get drunk with his friends and then I did it? Or I wasn't going to look at this on the laptop and I did it? Or I was going to read my Bible every day and I didn't? You say, Paul, you're telling me now, you're making a comment all about the future too, that there's no condemnation, no guilt, no shame? How can that be? How do I know that the condemnation's not going to creep back through the window after the sermon's over? How do you know it's not going to show back up after what we do next week? That's the question. And Paul is happy to answer your question. He's happy uh, to persuade you. Um, that it really is true. And here's what he starts talking about as he tries to persuade you and convince you that if you are in Jesus, if you have rested the weight of your life and your future in him, convinced that he can handle you, convinced that he can make you right with God, make you new and good again, if that is you, um, then Paul says Jesus has actually destroyed condemnation. Jesus, in a sense, is the monster killer Paul says something much better than there's not a monster under your bed, or there's not condemnation for you. He says something way beyond that. What he actually says is for the Christian, condemnation does not exist anymore. You can search the universe, high and low, every nook and cranny, you will not find it. It's been eradicated. It's been annihilated. It's been done away with. Uh, And again, we ask, well, prove it. How can this be true? Because my emotional stability, my joy, my encouragement, my endurance in this struggle of a Christian life all depends on this kind of stuff. And so where do we see Paul kind of bending over backwards to say, you can rest because of the work Jesus has done for you? Where do we see that? That's our first point. Uh, We see it a couple of places. Number one. Paul affirms that you are way out of your league trying to fight sin and become a better person. This is prime New Year's resolution season, right? How many of y'all have still kept the resolutions you made? I'm going to throw you under the bus. Taylor, you're the only one. It's Mark. All right. We have two disciplined people. Maybe y'all should take my job. So you might be best qualified. Um, Prime New Year's resolution season. Paul is saying... I'm not really throwing you on the bus. You probably have really good resolutions. But he's saying to people who kind of make moral resolutions, you have no business getting in the ring and trying to fight sin on your own. You will get knocked out like you're fighting Mike Tyson and you're a toddler. You have no business trying that. There is no match for you. How do we know that? Well, he says this in the the first few verses. Uh, He says, the law of God was powerless... To redeem you, verse three. For what God has, uh, for God has done, what the law, which was weakened by the flesh, could not do. Here's what that means. When he's talking about the law, he, he means specifically in this instance the Ten Commandments. Right? Ten Commandments is kind of an extrapolation of what it means to love God and love other people. Um, the law. You can think about this. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the law. Paul doesn't say the law is at fault for not being able to transform you and make you into a good person. He says the weakness of the flesh or our weakness is the problem, not the law. Here's what I mean. Think about the law of God, his his, uh, obedience, obeying what God says. This is the way of life. Think about the law as train tracks. Train tracks that whisper to all the trains that travel on it, follow me and I will take you to life. I will make you alive. The destination of these tracks is unspeakable joy. It is freedom. It is, it is love. But here's the problem. Do train tracks do anything to move the train on top of them? They're just two cold, dead pieces of steel. And so what if you're the train that doesn't have a locomotive on it, and those tracks are underneath you and they're whispering, follow me. Ride on me, and I'll take you to life. I'll take you to joy, to freedom, to love. And they begin to sound like they're mocking you, right? Because you're just this rusting hulk of a train car with no engine to pull you. And you're like, shut up, tracks!" And they're, all they do at that point is they show you how far away you are from the destination. They show you how dead you are, how joyless you are, how enslaved you are, Right? Because the track can't move you. Only an engine can move you. And so that's what Paul means when he says the law is a good thing. Railroad tracks are good. Trains don't get anywhere without those tracks. But he says the tracks itself was powerless to make you new. Or to change you or make you a good person or make you right with God. If you're not a Christian, here's a point of connection that Christians have with you. Every friend you have that is, kind of believes this stuff, at one point in their lives was a hulking, rusting wreck a train wreck, just sitting on tracks, rusting and decaying. They did nothing to get their life together. They did nothing to get their life together. They were just sitting there dead weight on tracks, going nowhere. Um, And so hopefully that encourages you to know that you don't have to be some superstar to get your life in order. Uh, It's actually not anything at all that your friend did. Uh, Paul says, the second thing he shows is, uh, it's what God did. That's the shortest shortest description of the gospel I've ever heard. God did. That's it. That's Christianity for you in a nutshell. God did. What the law couldn't do. What education can't do. uh, What time itself will not do. God did what morality can't do. What religion doesn't do. What other people won't do. God did. God did. That's good news. God did what nothing else could do for you, what no one else could do for you, in making you alive. He found you stuck. He found us dead. He found you motionless, inanimate. In a sense, being mocked by the very tracks that we're on, promising life, but we can't get there. That's where he found us, and he did what the law could not do. Christianity is not exclusive just to be jerks to people. It's not like, oh, we were the first here, and so we're going to say Jesus is the only way to salvation. Christianity is exclusive for this reason. God alone can do what nobody and nothing else can do. We're not exclusive just for the sake of that. We're exclusive because God exclusively and only can bring life to you. That's why Christians are exclusive. It's a way of being loving to people by telling the truth, not a way of trying to exclude people. How does God make you new? How does God begin to move that train to the intended destination? Well, verse 3, second part of verse 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for a sin offering. Your version I put in there doesn't have that, but if you have a Bible with you, you'll see a footnote. A lot of manuscripts have Jesus came to be a sin offering. Here's what it means. Remember the story about the kid in bed scared about the monsters? it's almost as if God set up a decoy and God kind of scurried you out of the room and he put Jesus in your bed, in your pajamas, under your covers and those monsters did come out and they did get him and they did devour him. Uh, but you, you were safely scurried outside. Meanwhile, that's going down in your room uh, with all of your stuff on. Uh, but Jesus raises up victorious over even death. He stands over it like a boxer in the ring with a weak opponent. And he says, What do you have now, death? What do you have, condemnation? You're on the ground and you're dead. Uh, and so Jesus, in a sense, was ambushed by the monster, wearing your clothes, that you might walk free. It's what the Bible calls atonement, or he was your substitute. This is how God, this is how God did it. Remember why Paul's doing this? He thinks you don't believe him when he says you're not condemned anymore. So he's like, hey, throw up the hood. Let's look and see. I'll prove it to you. Point by point, this is how God did it. You might think, well, God just was in a good mood that day. What if he's in a bad mood tomorrow? Or I was in a really good place in my life that time that I was really spiritual and everything, but now I'm not. So maybe I fell away. Paul's like, no, 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 no. Let's look at God, not you. Uh, And he's saying, throw up the hood and I'll prove this to you. God redeems people by sending Jesus. He has read the fine print of your life. He has found the skeletons in your closet. He has found all of the junk under your bed that you hide from everybody else but can't hide from him. He saw it before he acted. He knew what he was getting into when he came to you and said live. He knew what he was getting into when he sent his son To be a substitute for you. To take your condemnation so that you might take his acceptance. His welcome. He knew what he was getting into. He's not surprised by some fine print or something you did uh, after that. He knew ahead of time what he was getting himself into. Paul sums all this up in 1 Corinthians 5.21. He says, For your sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin... This perfect and innocent Jesus. The only person who's actually been any good at loving anybody. He made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin. To be sin. Why? He says there so that you might become the righteousness of who? The most holy person in your small group? Your older brother or sister who's like a super Christian? That uh, some Christian celebrity you idolized? The righteousness of who? Of Christ. God himself, of Christ. He says it in this passage too. Uh, same author, we get the same kind of stuff. Paul says in this passage uh, that the the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in you, Christian. You thought Christianity was maybe God making kind of a little bit of a bad person a little bit better. Or making a mean person kind of nice and that weird version of Christian politeness where it's just like, whoa, that's over the top. Like... I'd love to see you be mean a little bit, just to make make sure you're normal. He's not trying to, like, bring people up the scale a little bit. You're a two, now you're an eight. Jesus came to make dead people alive. He didn't come to mess around and try to make us better behaviors. He came to make dead people alive. Uh, He didn't come, uh, for any other reason than that, uh, make dead people alive, to make us holy. Here's why. Remember those railroad tracks? What are they whispering? Follow me. I'll, take, I'll make you alive. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't steal from people. Give to them. Don't steal life from people by gossiping. Edify them. Honor them with your words. Don't, don't toy around with God, thinking his name some little play toy to throw around meaninglessly. He is reality. The law For the Christian who's alive, it's like the spirit, this hulking, towering, just solid hunk of metal just like slowly squeaks back and latches himself up to you. This rusted out, stuck little train and those wheels start squeaking and rust starts falling off and you start moving. And and those tracks, those tracks now begin to tell you a good story. Follow me and you'll live. Now that you move, all that does is stir up excitement of where you're going now, right? I can't wait to that destination. Jesus is pulling me there now by his spirit, who is powerful, who is the locomotive, who is the only source of energy and power to do anything in this life. And so uh, those are the ways Paul says God has actually uh, worked on your behalf in Jesus. What's the, what's the effect? What's the, what do we do with that? Well, you rest. The beginning of the Christian life isn't working. That's religion. Every other religion begins with work, work, work. Christianity begins with rest because of God's work. It says, hey, why don't you take it easy? Stop trying to do stuff. Jesus has done it. Rest in him. That's the first step. If this is a two-step dance, the first step is rest. Because of what Jesus has done for you. Has this persuaded you? Does it make any difference in your life? Now that you've been reminded by this. Because God loves you. And tonight brought you here to remind this, remind you of this. Does it make any difference? Your anxiety level change at all. Your outlook on tomorrow or this week change at all. Your hope for the future change at all. Your love for Jesus change at all. Your confidence that you have the spirit of the eternal Son of God, living in you. He's ditched the temple. That gigantic, beautiful building in the Old Testament. He, Elvis has left that building. And he has taken up residence in you. You are the holy temple of God. This spirit dwells in you, Paul says. So, drill this into your head, Christian. You, uh, Little kids who still are scared by monsters when they're teenagers and college kids are weird. And we have strong medicine... Uh, to help with that. But here's the thing. Hopefully you're not going to go back tonight and be scared there's a monster in your bed. At some point you began to trust mom or dad. Or the evidence. Uh, that there wasn't really some person lurking uh, in your. Uh, that's actually scary than the monster. Never mind. There wasn't a monster. Shrek or something under your bed. Uh, you began to trust. And now you are freer. And more confident because of it. It's the same with the gospel. It is. It is a very personal thing between you and your God. Do you trust Him that He has searched high and low under every single rock and He has found no fault in you if you are hidden in Jesus? He finds nothing wrong with you. That's an amazing thought. Because of Jesus, you are innocent. You have the righteousness of who? God. God Himself. It's a righteousness that's not lacking. Our last point is this. If the first point is we, in the Christian life, we rest because of Christ's work for you, we fight because of this Spirit's work in you. It's an ongoing work, minute by minute. He doesn't give up. He's always there. He dwells in you now, and this is what he's doing. It's important that you know, as we've said, that the Spirit dwells in you, that Jesus has, in a sense, connected you up to this locomotive. And your life is some speed or another moving down these tracks towards life with a capital L. Intimacy with God, love of neighbor, newness in every facet of your life, newness in your sexuality, newness in your intellect, newness in your work, newness in your relationships, newness in your physical body, everything. He says your body will be resurrected. It's everything, right? All things new. Uh, That's where you're going if you are in Jesus, because Jesus won and he gets his way and he's pulling his people uh, towards life in abundance. And so that's where the spirit is taking you. That's where his energy, his pull is actually really in this life, changing you and making you a different person, not just declaring you to be innocent and good, making you good, making you righteous. Um, This movement, whether you're kind of moving on the tracks or not, is actually uh, one of the key marks of whether a person's alive or dead, spiritually alive or dead. Little side note, God encourages us to be moving down those tracks at a fast pace, but pace isn't what matters. John Calvin's a name you might know, he's a really famous theologian. John Calvin said, it doesn't matter the pace that you're moving it doesn't matter whether you're sprinting towards Jesus, crawling towards Jesus, or lying on the ground barely turning your chin around towards Jesus. He said all that matters is where you're looking, which direction you're facing. Okay, so if your train is the train that's like still hadn't left the station, but you're pointed that way and you want to go that way, uh, praise God for that. And if you've been a Christian a long time and you've seen a lot of fruit in your life and a lot of movement and the scenery's beginning to change... All your relationships used to suck. They used to be just hollow and dead and superficial. Now they're getting better. Praise God. But the question is what if the scenery has never changed in your life? You're the way you were 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, there's, There's no movement. There's no life. It's hollow. It's superficial. You don't know God. You're confused by Him. What do you do then? Paul loves you too, Jesus loves you enough to tell you the truth. And he would say, you will never move unless I come, connect myself to you, and pull you forward. He says it is impossible for those who don't have the spirit to please God. In other words, don't bother trying. That is a dangerous game if you're not a believer. If you're not in Jesus, please don't try to make God happy. He would warn you very, very seriously against that. Um, Jesus has done the work for you. What God wants you to do is to look to him. Not try to push your train down the tracks. It will exhaust you. It will kill you. It will make you hate God. Um, And so, is the scenery in your life changing? Or do you feel continually and only stuck at the same station uh, you've always been at? For those who are moving, whether you're moving at half a mile an hour or 30 miles an hour, what does that look like? What does it mean to what Paul says later on in the passage, by the Spirit, put sin to death? What's that mean? Or better question, what's that look like? Like, how do you know you're doing that? Uh, or like, how do you know how to do that tonight or tomorrow when you're trying to resist temptation or something? Well, here's a few key ideas, and then I'll, I'll share a quick story with you, and we'll be done. What does it look like to, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body that he says in verse 13? I think uh, the first thing is this. It looks like agreeing with the Spirit about where you want to go, about where you are going, right? I've never seen a train with two locomotives, one pulling this way, one pulling that way. It would be a sight to see, but it would be a disaster, right? Derailment. Uh, Christians at some level are those who love the fact that the Spirit is leading the train. Um, I get it. We still struggle with sin, I get it, we pull back sometimes afraid of where he's taking us, convinced he's going to hurt us. Um, That happens still, uh, but we hear him talk about where he's taking us and it sounds beautiful and awesome. And we want to participate with that. So do you agree with what God wants to do in you? If not, where do you want to go? Where would you prefer God take you? How are you convinced that that's a place of life? Another thing it looks like is hoisting your sails. If the wind is blowing and that's what's going to move your boat, then send up the sails. The gospel is that God is always blowing grace across the deck of your life. If your sails are up, you catch that wind and you start moving. So what would that look like? That's a metaphor. That would look, what would hoisting your sails look like? It would, it would look like becoming familiar with this story. Just like the kid has to become familiar with, Dad, check the closet. Check the closet. He said, I believe in that. You. Uh, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. What are the things of the Spirit? The Gospel. Obsess about the things that the Spirit of Jesus obsesses about, which is renewing everything in the world through Jesus. Be about what He's about. Move in the same direction He's moving because He's in front of you. And beating you to it. Hoist your sails. Catch the wind. This could look like reading your Bible. This could look like meeting up with a friend. Because you need to be reminded of this wind. This could look like going to church for the first time in your life. Putting yourself around this stuff. So that it makes sense to you. Uh, Hating what God hates. Hating what God hates. Christians are people who are supposed to be good at hating. We just usually hate the wrong stuff. We hate people. Uh, And we have to repent of that. God hates stuff. God hates what evil has done to the world and what it's done to you. God hates sin because it's death that parades around like it's life. Do you want to hate the things that God hates? Or do you want to hate God? Where's your hatred? Where does that need to change? Where do you need to repent and change? This could look like a lot of other things that will make uh, more apparent in the days ahead. But it could look like getting involved in a small group. Not just because you need it. Other people need you. Other people need you. It could look like um, preaching this gospel to yourself when you get stuck. And knowing that that's actually a really holy, beautiful, powerful thing. Um, I told you I'd tell you a story and we'd be done. And so let me do that. I've I've told you about this before. But one of my favorite movies, I've watched this with several of y'all, is uh, The King's Speech. And I've told you before, I have never seen a better portrayal of what the Holy Spirit does than that movie. If you haven't seen the movie, it is the true story of King George VI and his speech therapist, Lionel Logue. Uh, King George VI basically was never supposed to be on the throne, but his dad died, and his next oldest brother was kind of a playboy uh, who um, basically didn't want to be on the throne because he wanted to do, like, kind of get drunk and party and so this third-in-the-line guy accidentally becomes first in line for the throne. The problem is King George VI had one of the worst stutters you've ever heard. He couldn't get two words out. Just he got caught there. he couldn't get over that stutter. Now, if you're the king, and it's World War II, and your people depend on you leading them through that every day, how do you lead if you can't talk? You can't be king. You can't be who you were made to be if you can't talk. And so he searches high and low to find a solution to his problem so that he can talk again. He tries all these different things, all these different doctors, none of them work. Right? God did. Nothing else worked. Well, Lionel Logue, in a sense, I think is the picture of the Holy Spirit. Lionel Logue knew what he was doing. He would work with King George VI patiently, every day they would meet. It was grueling for King George to say, he hated going to these meetings. He stopped going several times, but saw how desperate he was, and so he came back. Uh, but they would basically sit there for hours and just practice the letter F. F, F, Practice letter B. B-b-b-b. Mother. How to get over that hump. How to get over, how to say these words, how to let them off your tongue. Uh, and that is the way uh, that King George slowly... Slowly, slowly learn how to speak again. Here's the point the Holy Spirit dwells in you, which means He is with you shoulder to shoulder every minute of your life, Christian. He is there when you stutter, when you get stuck in the same place, stuck in the same pattern, stuck in the same sin. We are tempted to think that I'm condemned and God is a wall. Nothing could be further from the truth. You are accepted and welcomed in Christ. You are delighted in. And the spirit of Jesus is there, as it were, saying, little tiny progress, pushing you over that hump so that next time it's a little bit easier. You look at 30 years of that, 60 years of that, you're a different person. John said in what Peter read earlier, when you see Jesus, you will be like him. Spirit will not stop until you're 100% new. 100% exactly like Jesus. Let's pray with encouragement that that's what he's doing. Lord Jesus, we thank you that this is what you have done in our lives, that we were that wreck of a train just sitting there with no way to move. We thank you that you saw us in our distress. You heard our silly, (coughs) even-sounding prayers. We didn't even know what to pray or ask, but you heard that. You loved us. You gave your life for us to make us alive again, new again, and good again. Uh, Would you do that for my friends and for me as well tonight? Make us alive, make us new, and do it for your sake. Amen.